0: What figure in history would you like to have dinner with? Uh, it's a popular get-to-know-you question, maybe at, uh, at some kind of group gathering. It functioned as an icebreaker. Uh, maybe it was a question that you were asked on a date. Uh, whatever the case may be, I suspect that you've heard that question before. T- take a minute and puzzle through it. Who would you like to have dinner with in history? Um, how would you answer? George Washington, Winston Churchill, probably are popular answers, but uh, since we're here to worship Jesus, uh, I'm sure that somebody thought of Jesus here this morning. Uh, For those who believe in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, the truth is, is that we're going to dine with Him in the kingdom of heaven. When all is said and done and Jesus returns in glory and brings the world to its wonderful end, the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to host a heavenly banquet. But imagine for a minute that you could have dinner with Jesus before His return. What do you think it would be like? My guess is with figures like Washington and Churchill, our expectations of the dinner would kind of be one of delighting in the stories that they are telling us, the, the triumphs that they've had in their lives, uh, maybe even learning from their failures. We'd, we'd want to hear their stories. But, but what would dinner with Jesus be like? Uh, my, my guess is, I think that He would want to tell us what He has done for us in His life and death and resurrection, but then, then my expectation would be that Jesus would kind of turn the tables on us and ask, so, do you believe? Uh, are you going to join the company of those who will enjoy the banquet in the kingdom of heaven. I think he would ask, so are you going to take up your cross and follow me? In fact, those are precisely the questions that we'll see Jesus put to his hearers as he has dinner with them in Luke chapter 14. And they are precisely the questions that we should be asking ourselves today. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles. To Luke chapter 14, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, then I believe you should be able to find the, the passage beginning on page 873, 873. Before we kind of dive into the passage together, let's remember where we've come from and where we're going in Luke's gospel. The gospel of Luke was written by Luke. Uh, Luke was a physician and a ministerial companion of the Apostle Paul. Paul was one of the early preachers, first missionaries. Uh, he was a preacher of Jesus Christ, and right from the beginning of this work in, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke told us that he was writing an orderly account of Jesus' life based upon the testimony of those who had seen and interacted with Jesus. Luke's Gospel, as well as the three other Gospels in the New Testament, are appropriately categorized in the, the genre of Greek bioi, bio, or Greco-Roman biographies. Uh, Greco-Roman biographies were usually composed in kind of a continual prose form. Normally they didn't cover the entirety of a person's life rather generally speaking there was a very brief mention of ancestry in the biography but their main focus was rapidly moving toward the person's public life and these biographies of of generals and leaders uh, were, were usually kind of arranged chronologically. Though sometimes Uh, Within them, they were arranged around kind of the main points of their public teaching. And in fact, that is where we are in Luke's gospel. Uh, We're in the middle of a 10-chapter journey on the road to Jerusalem where Jesus is teaching His disciples and the crowds who are following Him. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus got on the road to Jerusalem. In chapter 19, verse 44, He's going to arrive there to complete His mission which is to die on the cross for the salvation of sinners and to be raised from the grave. In Luke 14, we kind of briefly hop off the road for a moment. Uh, Jesus uh, gets off the road for a meal, and then after a bite and a brush with the law, the Pharisees, uh, we get back on the road with Jesus. That's kind of what happens in this chapter. And this morning we're presented with two main points that make the whole point of the chapter clear. So first, in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 24, we're invited to a dinner party. We're invited to dine with Jesus. And secondly, in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35, we're called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Basically, we're called to die like Jesus. Now, here's the whole point. If you want to dine with Jesus, you've got to die like Jesus. If I had one sentence to summarize the message of Luke 14, that would be it. If you want to dine with Jesus, then you've got to die like Jesus. If you want to dine and feast with Jesus in the kingdom of heaven, then you've got to put your pursuit of placing yourself first to death. And with this in mind, let's stick our noses in the text now. now. Let's begin with our first point, dining with Jesus. Dining with Jesus. And as we think about this, let's just begin with the first six verses. Uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him, And healed him and sent him away and he said to them which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out and they could not reply to these things here we see that Jesus is invited to a dinner party you'll note that in verse 12 actually he's invited to this dinner party and he does something that he's been ridiculed for doing before on a Sabbath He heals a man oppressed by a disease. This scene is is full of tension. Jesus is invited to dine at the house of a ruler of a Pharisee. And what we need to remember at this point in Luke's Gospel is that Jesus has not gotten along very well with the Pharisees. Jesus has called out Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7 for his lack of love. Jesus pronounced woes of judgment over the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11. Uh, then in Luke chapter 12, Jesus explicitly called out the Pharisees in general for their hypocrisy and greed. How is it now that Jesus is dining in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees? Look at the end of verse 1. They were watching him carefully. See, that phrase, it turns up a couple of times in Luke's gospel. Uh, we saw it in Luke chapter 6 verse 7 where we read, And the scribes of the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that, purpose clause, why are they watching him? So that they might find a reason to accuse him. And see, we'll come upon this phrase again later in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, where we read, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So you see what's going on here in Luke chapter 14. The Pharisees are keeping their friends close and their enemies closer. They are looking for dirt on Jesus. What they really want is to silence Him. But Jesus ends up silencing them once again. The tension at this dinner party must have been incredibly thick. Uh, Luke makes us aware in verse 2 that there was a man before Jesus who had dropsy. The first question we've got to ask ourselves is this. What is He doing there? right? I mean, what is a man with a disease doing in a Pharisee's house? What is a man who may even be kind of ceremonially, religiously unclean, what is he doing in the house of this religious person, this ruler of the Pharisees, the leader of the people who are consummately concerned with cleanliness? What is he doing in his house on the Sabbath? This disease would be Visibly present itself through the swelling of the abdomen, perhaps the chest cavity. The man's body is basically retaining fluid. Eventually his condition would result in organ failure and death if left untreated. This man is in need of mercy and healing from Jesus. You know, in the history of the Bible, this disease actually turns up in an interesting place in Numbers chapter 5 verses 21 and 22. Where it would function as a curse upon a woman who was caught in an adulterous relationship in the minds of the Jews in Jesus day when they see this they would think this is not a disease that I want to have anything to do with you don't want to get it you don't want to be around it so what's this man doing here and I think we should start to wonder whether or not Jesus hosts have set him up they were watching him after all and Jesus He handles this situation masterfully, doesn't he? He unfolds the same course of logic the last time he was put in this situation. Jesus asked his host there in verse 3, whether or not it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. This is followed by crickets. They've got nothing but silence for Jesus. Perhaps they're learning, learning from the last time. This is nothing less than a subtle reminder from Jesus that healing on the Sabbath is permissible because it exemplifies the very heart of the Sabbath. remember, the Sabbath is about rest. Remember, the Sabbath was made for man because he needs rest. Healing this man of an oppressive disease gives him rest from the disease. See, in verse 4, Jesus, He graciously heals and so gives rest to this man. And it must have been an immediate healing too, for Jesus sends him away. You see that in verse 4? And the dinner party just kind of keeps going. Jesus will not allow the threat of the religious rulers lying in wait to catch him, to prevent him from showing mercy to the least. And it's here in verse 5 that Jesus turns to impress upon his hearers the point of what he has done. Speaking directly to them, Jesus asks them if they would... If they would care for their children or their animals on the Sabbath. You know, would, you, would you rescue them from danger on the Sabbath? Of course they would rescue their children and their animals from danger on the Sabbath. Why would it not be okay for Jesus to rescue this man from death on the Sabbath? And suddenly we hear the crickets again. They have got no answer for Jesus. And what we have encountered in these first six verses... Is astounding hypocrisy right but we're hypocrites we are hypocrites if we don't think we've done the same thing as the Pharisees we've smiled at people we really wish to scowl at that's hypocrisy it's being one thing outwardly but being another inwardly we all suffer suffer and struggle with hypocrisy and the only antidote is to recognize our true place before our God and our desperate need for His grace. And this is what verses 7 to 11 are about. But Before we go on, I do do want to mention one thing that you can kind of take a look at later. Um, The healing in this dinner conversation about whether or not it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath is the setting in which everything from verses 7 to 24 takes place. You can see it really in verses 7, 12, and 15. In other words, everything from verses 7 to 24 takes place at this dinner with Jesus. All of this is tightly connected to dining with Jesus. So what does Jesus first say to his fellow dinner guests? He looks around the room and he speaks to them. Look at verses 7 to 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, Move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Is Jesus just giving some kind of good advice here? No. Jesus is telling a story in which he intends for his hearers to think of themselves inside that story. As characters inside the story... And then to take to heart the story's wisdom and truth. Jesus, he sets this parable in the context of a wedding feast. And what is everyone doing when Jesus is telling this parable? Well, they're all feasting on the Sabbath. It's just so immediately applicable to his audience. And then Jesus kind of brings about this full assault on their pride. He says his hearers love to sit in the places of honor. What leads someone to do that? Well, they think that they are a person who is worthy of the most honor. We've all known these people. Uh, They are the ones who move to the top of the line. You're standing in line at the airport and someone kind of skips ahead and stands and leans on the desk wanting to intervene in your conversation perhaps with the person behind the desk. Or you're you're at the coffee shop or the fast food place and somebody does the the same thing. Uh, We see this and we kind of recoil. Um, we, we think that this kind of behavior is 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 distasteful. but friends, we've we've all done the same thing. Uh, we've done it since our childhood. we've We've all said those things that toddlers say, me first. Uh, we've all interrupted others in conversations. we've we've done it to our spouses, our our coworkers, we've done it to fellow believers. Those interruptions are are just a verbal way of saying me first. If we are to find ourselves in this story, We've got to come to recognize that we're those who are looking for the top table. Even if we don't sit at the top table, we, we want to. And and sometimes we, we think that we deserve to be there. No, we don't. We we actually deserve really worse than the last place. The Pharisees choose the high places because they think of themselves more highly than they ought. They think they are favored by God and therefore everyone should favor them. Jesus is saying to His hearers and to us, if you go on exalting yourself, you're going to be humbled. Jesus even even suggests that they will be ashamed. You know, in Luke chapter 18 verse 14, just four chapters later, Jesus will use this exact same language here in verse 11. And he's going to expound the point that he's making here. Jesus is going to tie this attitude to justification before God. And what we're looking at here is a spiritual truth connected to our eternal salvation and destiny. What is going to get you moved up to the top table? Is it your humility? Is it your your wisdom for taking the lowest place? No. No. It is the generosity and the graciousness of the host. You, 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 don't, you move up higher not because you have been wise. You move up higher because your host comes to you. And he takes you. And leads you. And provides you with the credentials for moving up. It's his name. Is it not the same with our salvation? Are we going to be received into heaven because we're good and honest and honorable no we're going to be received into heaven because the host of heaven because Jesus has come to us in his grace and mercy and love and said you you come with me it's Jesus who says he's coming into my kingdom on account of my righteousness friends we need to recognize that there is nothing that commends us to the host of heaven. We really ought to take the last place. We really are worthy of hell. We've not only tried to take the first place before other men and women, we've even tried to take God's place. We've all said, thank you very little, God. I'll, I'll run my own life. I'll be my own ruler. I'll be my own master and Lord. We have all done that hideous and ugly thing of self-exaltation. There's really no room for boasting. Jesus tells us to take the last place. Trust not in yourself, but trust in me and my grace. That is what Jesus says to the guests around him and to us. But what does Jesus say to his host? See, Jesus has something for everybody here. He turns to his host. What does he say to the ruler of the Pharisees, the one who invited him for dinner? Take a look at verses 12 to 14. Verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What a strange thing to do, right? I mean, have you ever given advice to your your hosts uh, on their hospitality right there at their dinner table? Uh, Jesus is full of surprises, isn't he? Friend, thank you so much for this invitation. Now, let me just tell you who you really should have invited. I mean, these guests are lovely, but here's the thing. They're just, they're too lovely. Wait a minute. I mean, we we think to ourselves, what what is wrong with inviting and having dinner with your friends and family and neighbors? Is Jesus really prohibiting us from from eating with our friends and families and neighbors? No. This is another thing that we kind of need to recognize about parables. Uh, They're not only stories that we find ourselves in, But they're also a kind of wisdom literature. Uh, They they require discernment to discover the pearl of wisdom. And Jesus actually will often kind of give himself away as he's telling a parable. Take a look at at verse 12 again. Notice how Jesus describes the people right there at the end of the list. He describes them with rich neighbors. You see, Jesus, he's implying something here. And when we read this carefully, we see what's going on here. Jesus is communicating... That the host has been inviting guests who can exalt him. He has extended this invitation with a good bit of self-interest in mind. Jesus is actually pointing out that the host has the same problem as everyone else in his home. He thinks highly of himself. And Jesus is making plain that his host has this dangerous disease of seeking dignity and devotion from others. He's using others to receive accolades and benefits and honor for himself. And in all of this, it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus actually does not diminish the duty of giving feasts or of being hospitable. Instead of giving uh, a feast, instead of inviting those who will serve you, invite those you can serve. There is some application here for us, I think, in our hospitality, isn't there? Invite those who you can serve. The list in verse 12 and 13 are are same in number, but they're dramatically different in character and class. Jesus is trying to draw sharp contrast. Invite those who can give you nothing in return. Look to God for your repayment. Look to God for your reward. Look to God for your exaltation. Don't live for man's honor and praise. Live for God's honor and praise. And here we can find ourselves in Jesus' teaching too. I mean, all of us have had ulterior motives in helping others from time to time. You know, I'll, I'll do this for so-and-so, and maybe, maybe just maybe down the road, they'll do, they'll do this for me. And we've all done that. We've done it in almost every relationship imaginable, in our, in our workplaces, in our homes, with our spouses, our parents, with our children. We've all sought to exalt ourselves. But yet again, we see Jesus put this all in light of eternity. When He says at the end of verse 14, For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It's a promise with a punch, really. On the last day, that's what Jesus is referring to when He's speaking here. On the last day, God will raise the righteous from their graves, giving them glorified bodies, and welcome them into the new heavens and the new earth. Live this day, live today, in light of that eternal day, as it has often been said. Trust and believe that God will reward you with a crown of life, not because of any works of righteousness which you have done, but solely through faith in Jesus. What Jesus is calling us to hear is nothing less than what He Himself has done, He is that kind of Savior, the one who has walked the road before us. Every command He gives, every command that Jesus gives, He gives with understanding because He has obeyed, lived it, and loved us through it before calling us to it. Hasn't Jesus come to rescue the spiritually poor, the spiritually crippled, the spiritually lame and the spiritually blind. Before Jesus, we were all poor. How did the hymn writer put it? No righteousness nor merit, no beauty can I plead, yet in the cross I glory, my title there I read. Before Jesus healed us, we were crippled and lame. There's no way we could ever make it to God before Jesus we were blind, we had no idea that we couldn't see anything worth seeing. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 verse 3. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, Jesus calls his host to abandon self-interest, to abandon building his own kingdom, and to build God's kingdom. To look at people, to look at image-bearers, those who have been made in God's image. Not as those whom you can use to advance your own name, but to see their need for Jesus and to show them His generosity and grace through hospitality and generosity and charity. And after instructing both the guests and the host, a guest speaks up In verse 15 maybe he was kind of trying to break the awkward silence that we can imagine coming after Jesus has just said something so publicly to the host he was certainly trying to interact with what Jesus just said take a look there at verse 14 Luke chapter 14 verse 15 when one of those who reclined at table heard him heard these things he said to him blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God I mean that sounds religious and right Doesn't it? I mean, on the face of it, it's right, right? Won't all who eat bread in the heavenly kingdom of God be blessed? I mean, what is is there to disagree with here? Does Jesus really need to reply to this? Why do we have verses 16 to 25? Well, we have verses 16 to 25 because those present will not eat bread in the kingdom of God unless they repent and embrace the king who is dining with them that is what those sitting there dining with Jesus don't understand they don't see they don't understand that God is issuing an invitation to them in Jesus Christ and they're not interested in him they don't actually want to dine with him they want to destroy him they want to crucify him what's going to happen at the end of this road. And their disinterest, their rejection of Jesus is what He's going to describe in this parable. It's going to happen next. An invitation is going to be given and people aren't going to be interested in coming to the banquet. Take a look at these verses. Pick up there in verse 16. But He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of this city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said, To the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. There are several important lessons uh, and and features nested in this parable, but we, we can only really point out a few. The first important feature is to note that Jesus, he maintains this feast theme, doesn't he? And this proves that Jesus was a Baptist. No, Uh, what it proves is that Jesus has in mind, and has always had in mind throughout these parables, the great end-time banquet that the Old Testament prophets spoke of, and of what the Apostle John promises is still yet to come in the book of Revelation. Uh, The culmination of world history will end with a great feast, for the people of God. The book of Revelation calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19 verse 9. That is what we ought to be longing for, desiring. But those in the parable weren't interested in it. You can see in verses 18, 19, and 20 that they all make excuses, right? One guy bought a field and he wants to go and have a look at it. Really? It's not like the fields going anywhere. And tomorrow's a good day too. Why would anyone pass up a feast for a field? And another guy, he wants to go and have a look at the oxen you just bought. And, and you're telling me that you haven't actually looked at these oxen before you purchased them. Now, on the face of it, the marriage excuse, right? I mean, that seems legit until we remember that any good husband is going to take his wife to a banquet. These are all just excuses. The truth is, is they don't want to come. Now maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning, but you're really not interested in Jesus and in his kingdom. Maybe you're here because your parents brought you along, but you'd rather be reading or playing video games or kind of hanging out at a friend's house. Maybe you're here because your coworker has been badgering you and won't stop badgering you until you come to church and you thought if you just kind of came this once, you'd put an end to their request to come. Maybe you've been coming along to this church for quite some time, but you come for show because you really don't want anything to do with Jesus, God's word, God's people, or, or God's kingdom. Is that who you are in this parable? If, if, if that's who you identify with, then, then I need to point out something to you. I, I want to point it out to you in love. It's, it's not so much that those in verses 18 to 20 are indifferent to the invitation. It's that they're positively refusing the invitation. Even though everything is now ready. You see that in verse 17. And, and this leads to the next important thing that we need to recognize about this parable. And something you need to hear and see. Refusing the invitation will lead you being refused entry into the banquet. Your refusal now will result in you being refused later. Your refusal of God's invitation in this life will result in you being refused in the life to come to enter the kingdom of God. That's the thrust of verse 24. You see it there? For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. We we must keep in mind that Jesus is using stories and analogies and parables connected to our experience of this life to communicate to us the truth about life in God's kingdom. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying if you choose the things of this life, if you choose the things of this life over me and my Father in heaven, you will be barred from glory. If you choose a field and farm animals and even family over God, you've chosen to reject God's kingdom. Now here's how one scholar put it. From a divine perspective, and this is the perspective that Jesus introduces us to in this parable. From a divine perspective, work, property, family, and even life itself are trifles in comparison to the incomparable and eternal kingdom of God. To refuse the kingdom on their account is sheer folly. Those who don't think they need to feast and have eternal fellowship with God will reject Him. But you know who won't? You know who won't reject this invitation, God's gracious invitation? It's those who know themselves to be needy they will turn up to the feast because they know they need to eat with Jesus in order to live. That same list that appeared in verse 13 appears yet again here in verse 21. But what is the result in verse 22? There's still room. Isn't that astounding? There's still room. Which means the servant, he needs to go out and invite more people to come in. What's the implication? The implication is that if that servant comes to you, you should accept the invitation. You see, the parable ends with a servant given a command to go out and invite others to come in. The invitation to come into this banquet is still going out now. The invitation to come into God's kingdom is still going out It's going out right now. It's going out to you. Friends, the invitation to enter into God's kingdom comes through the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ calls us to recognize that we have sinned and rebelled against God. And the good news, it starts with bad news. And the bad news is is that we're hypocrites We're self-interested, we're prideful, and we have endeavored to remove God from His throne. We have sinfully tried to rule our own lives and make ourselves the center of everything. And because of our sin against God, we all stand in danger of facing His just wrath forever in hell. And yet in love and in mercy and grace, God sent His one and only most beloved Son, To live the life that we've not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus spoke truly. He loved faithfully. And He died obediently. Jesus died on the cross bearing God's wrath against the sin of all of those who'd ever turned from their sin and placed their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all, that His life and death on behalf of repentant sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And then Jesus, having been raised from the dead, commissioned His disciples to go out and make this invitation known. And Jesus' disciples have been proclaiming and making this invitation available ever since that time. And friend, Jesus calls each and every one of us to accept God's invitation of salvation from sin and death By turning from our sins and placing our faith in Him. And Luke chapter 14 verse 23 tells us that God wants His house to be full. He wants you to come. So come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Friends, don't let Satan deceive you into thinking that you're not good enough for Jesus. Jesus has sent His servants out for those who are broken and weary. And diseased with sin whose hearts are dark and black he has come for those who fall at his feet and cry Lord be merciful to me a sinner and if that is you he has come for you he is issuing this invitation to you to come and be saved so come to him give up your whole life to him Prefer Him above all else, above everything, even life itself. And in fact, this is what Jesus makes plain in verses 25 to 35. If we want to dine with Jesus in the kingdom of heaven, we've got to die like Jesus. We've got to take up our cross like He took up His and follow Him. So let's turn and consider our our second point, dying like Jesus and this point will be much shorter than the first one so let's read verses 25 to 35 now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes even his own life He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you See, in verse 25 there, you'll notice that Luke reminds us that Jesus is still being accompanied by great crowds. It's it's hard to tell whether or not uh, Luke means for us to envision them in the home of the Pharisee or if we're now to understand that Jesus has kind of hopped back on the road to Jerusalem and is marching toward his death. I suspect that that's the case. Uh, But what we know for certain is that Luke wants us to understand that Jesus' audience has gotten larger. And this is an interesting and important rhetorical move for we we must remember that the invitation to join the kingdom of god is still going out far and wide in fact all who follow jesus are called to invite others to follow jesus and followers of jesus are called to sincerely and freely proclaim that jesus invites sinners into the kingdom the door is open wide but as we learned last week the open door is a narrow door luke chapter 13 verse 24 that means that we cannot take all of our treasures in this life into the kingdom we, we have to recognize that God is to be our greatest treasure he is worth leaving everything behind isn't that what verse 26 is is communicating if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple you know initially we kind of read this and we think This is too hard. Do we really have to leave behind everyone and everything that gives us significance and status and security and safety? Let's remember that Jesus is using hyperbole. Uh, Sometimes it feels as though our culture has lost the ability to use hyperbole in discourse. Hyperbole is a way of stating something in an exaggerated way to make a point. Hyperbole, by the way, is not good for Twitter. Just, that's free. Uh, I, but this is what Jesus is using here. I, I appreciate how one commentator put it. He wrote, Jesus' meaning is surely that the love of the disciple, that the love the disciple has for him must be so great that the best of earthly loves is hatred by comparison. Yes, the, the, the love of Jesus' disciples is even displayed in death. Verse 27 makes that plain. The cross was an instrument of death used by Rome. Roman soldiers would would burst through the doors of the homes of the men that they were going to put to death. They would strap the cross beam to his back and they would make him walk to his death. And when they got to the place of of his execution, their hands would be nailed to the cross beam and he would be raised up for all to see. The cross was such a gruesome form of death that Roman citizens were exempt from it they would be put to death by more humane means you know in our 21st century western context we have come to see the cross as something that is beautiful so beautiful that we can kind of wear it as a a piece of, of jewelry but in Jesus day and age the cross was heinous and hideous and a horrific instrument of torture to speak of the cross was to speak of death and whatever it was spoken of it was spoken of in hushed terms Jesus tells us here in verse 27 that his disciples carry crosses just like he would do when he reached the end of the road in Jerusalem. Jesus was not saying that we all have to kind of go out in the lobby and pick up our cross beams and carry them out into the world every day. No, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He's speaking truly and he's speaking metaphorically. So what is he saying? Well, in view of what Jesus has just said in Luke 14, among other things, Jesus is saying that we must die to hypocrisy, die to hubris, die to self-exaltation, die to self. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And what's been most helpful for me in, in thinking through what it means to take up my cross and follow Jesus are those three words there in the middle of verse 27. Those three words, come after me. You see, cross-bearing is ultimately about the one who bore the cross for us. Cross-bearing is about laying all other loves down for the one who laid down his life for us in love. Before we say that we're on board, or before the cross board is on us, Jesus calls us, To count the cost. That's what verses 28 to 32 are all about. Through different scenarios, building a tower, preparing for war, Jesus warns us of the difficulty and the cost of being His disciple. He calls us to ask, are you able to complete it? Verse 28, are you able to finish? Verse 30, can you make it to the end of life's road? Verse 33, can you prefer me? Can you prefer Jesus above all things Are you willing to give up everything for me? Everything? Everything Jesus says. Is there anything you're willing to not give up? Is there anything you're unwilling to give up? Can Can you give up your house for Jesus? Can you give up the praise of men? Your job, your financial security your children, your spouse. Can you give up your life for Jesus? If the Lord were to take everything from you, like he took away everything from Job, could you say, would you say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. you can only say that you can only imagine saying that if you are fully persuaded that Jesus is worth more to you than everything you have the Apostle Paul he was fully persuaded that's why he wrote in Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 and 8 but whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Why would Jesus say what he said in verse 33? Why would he make such a demand? Because he's worth it. He's worth everything. Samuel Rutherford was right when he said, They lose nothing who gain Christ. We gain glory in Jesus Christ. We gain the promise of the resurrection, the promise of bodies which will never again suffer disease, decay, and death, because we will have a body like his in the eternal kingdom. But more than that, we have him, our Savior we gain a feast with Him, with the King of the universe, the King who stooped down, took on flesh, suffered for us and for our salvation, and called us to come in and eat with Him. All that is worth having is found in Him, and that is why we go after Him. So brothers and sisters, let's follow Him. Indeed, verses 34 and 35 are an encouragement to follow Him and to keep following Him. Don't lose your saltiness. If you hear what I'm saying, then your life is going to be marked by an ongoing discipleship, an ongoing cross-bearing, an ongoing Christ-likeness because you value Jesus above all else. The lives of true disciples will have an ongoing distinctive flavor to them, the flavor of cross-bearing sacrifice and christ-like love so why end this teaching with he who has ears to hear let him hear and by the way this is where we're going to end this teaching why end this teaching with he who has ears to hear let him hear because we are responsible to hear what jesus has said to us we are responsible to hear it and apply it to our lives And we need to ask ourselves, do we have ears to hear? Are we really listening to Jesus? How do we know if we are those who have ears to hear? If we're really listening? Well, the short answer is we take up our cross and we follow Him. We accept His invitation. We will display in our lives that we want to dine with Jesus in the kingdom of heaven, by hearing his call to a cross bearing life and by coming to him, by coming all the way home to him. Let's pray together.